Welcome to X Church. Hey, how many of you are enjoying that white stuff that we've got here? Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't mind it like early in the season when I want to feel Christmas, but after that, I'm over it, right? Hey, I want to welcome you. And if you're new to this space, um, if you're new to this community, whether it's online or in the room, I'm excited that you're here today. You're kind of catching us on the tail end of a really fascinating series, one I've personally enjoyed. It's been a big challenge uh, called Origins, where we've just been talking about uh, these really deep questions about life. And um, I, I don't know if this is kind of like, you're like, I'm ready for this series to be over. It's too much like school. Good news for you. Next week, you can come back to our regular programming, all right? But if you're someone that goes, I've enjoyed this, well, then I, I'm glad for that. I hope it's encouraged you because I believe that there is a space where, where faith and where science and intellect and all this can merge. And I, I believe it's important that we're having that conversation. And here's what I know is we've been wrestling hard questions is that some of you maybe have had your own questions. And we've, we've received questions from a bunch of you. And I actually took on our last podcast, the X podcast, to kind of wrestle through and answer some of your questions you submitted outside of the series. So if you wanted to kind of dive deeper into that, go check out the X podcast just released on Friday, and you can be a part of that conversation even more. All right. Now, if you have been here, we've gone through a lot of different subjects of school. We've been talking philosophy and physics and mathematics and biology and chemistry and some history. I know it's all your favorite subjects. But today we're going to wrap up this series talking about one that's again about faith. And I want to talk today about the B-I-B-L-E because that's the book for me. I stand up on the word of God. It's the Okay, I just wanted to see how many of you went, grew up and going to Sunday school like I did. Yeah, uh, those of you that didn't, you're like, what happened? Just, it's just an old church thing, okay? I want to talk about this question on uh, bibliology or bibliography, and that is where did the Bible come from? Let, let's talk about the Bible for just a moment, all right? Here's what I imagine. I imagine most, if not all of of every person that's in this conversation or even online right now, my guess is you've had some encounter with the Bible. Even if you're not a person of faith, my guess is that you probably had some kind of moment where you engaged with the Bible. It's just kind of something we see in our culture today, right? We, we get, uh, you know, it's just kind of growing up. Maybe for some of you, it started when you were at grandmother's house or maybe your parents' house. And they had a Bible sitting on the end table or it was on the coffee table. And one time you made a huge, huge mistake. You took a can of your soda pop and you set it right on top of the Bible. And your grandmother just went ballistic. You're like, what? And she's like, no, don't put anything on that. It'll melt, right? It's like, because it's a holy book. You, you don't mess with the holy book. Some of you probably grew up and that was kind of, you know, what's interesting is never once visiting your grandmother, your friend, you never saw that book ever move. It always just sat there. You know, they dust around it, and it's like no one ever read it, but you don't mess with it. I don't know if that was maybe your experience with the Bible, your first one. I know others of you, um, maybe you didn't come from a context of church and your first encounter with the Bible was you met some Christians and they weren't the nice kind. And they proceeded to just 
they like like arrows in their or 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 ammo in their weapon they just threw a litany of verses at you because apparently you were doing life all wrong and they're telling you about how you're going to hell and you're like why are you so angry okay maybe some of you that that was your experience with the bible or maybe if it was like maybe it was like mine i grew up in the church and so we learned all these really awesome Bible stories and we learned the B-I-B-L-E song and we learned all, all these things. And then maybe as you got a little bit older and then you went to college or university, you had a professor who just kind of ripped apart everything that you kind of believed about it. And they just told you about how that book has got errors all throughout and contradictions and how there's no evidence and it was written way later than people think and then you can't trust it. And all this stuff they said about your faith and you just went, oh my gosh, I, everything I trusted, it just, it just kind of maybe crumbled. In that moment, you just kind of stepped back a little bit and you just didn't know what to think about it. I, I want to just kind of ask this question, and, and, and we're in church, so you can all be really honest. All right. How many of you have ever read the Bible from cover to cover the entire thing? Raise your hand. Have you ever, only if you read the whole thing. Okay. All right. it's, it's some of you. Okay. Now, since we're, we're going to be really honest, okay, in church, how many of you have tried, but you've never been able to make it all the way through. Raise your hand. Okay. All the, I love that we have such an honest community. Everybody's like, I haven't read the Bible at all, Pastor. That's why I come to church, so you can give it to me. Hey, let, let, let's talk a little bit about the Bible, because I, I understand some of you, a bunch of you go, I tried. I really did, and I, I, I made the I guess I made the mistake. No one ever told me. It was like, here's a Bible, and I did what you do with all books. I started in the beginning, and I was like, I just, I'm like, this has got some great stories, and it's good. And then I got to the third book, and it was called Leviticus, and it was strange and weird, and there was a lot of blood and killing animals, and I just closed it, and I was done. Hey. That's cool. I get it. I get it. I get it. This, we've all had different experiences with the Bible. I want to talk a little bit about the Bible and, and kind of, I want to talk about how do we get the Bible that we have? Can we trust the Bible? These are questions I think are important. What should the Bible mean in my life? Now, I want to take the first couple minutes and I want to just kind of go through some basics of the Bible. And so I've got my dry erase board here again. So I don't know if you like taking notes, but this is really helpful. If you're a note-taking person, put this on your phone and it might help you. I want to talk a little bit about the Bible. Now, uh, how many of you know that the Bible is not just a book? It's actually better said a collection of books. And it kind of is divided in two parts, not quite evenly, but two parts. Does anybody know what those two parts are? We have the Old Testament and the New Testament. So let's talk about these two parts for just a second, right? We got the Old Testament and we got the New Testament. All right, two parts of the Bible. Now, why is it called the Old Testament, New Testament? Now, first of all, the word testament means covenant. So, okay, so it's, it's really about these, these covenant that God was making. Okay, we're going to talk about that. But we have an old one and a new one. Why do you think we have the Old and the New Testament? And you're thinking, I know this. It's because this one's really old and this one's new. No. Can we all agree both of these are really old to us? Okay. The old covenant and new covenant represents two separate promises or deals from God to mankind. Okay. So let's talk about this. 
All right, in the Old Testament, we have just a little pop quiz. And if you know this, just yell out loud. Just pretend we're in class, all right? How many books, Protestant, we'll go Protestant. How many books in the Protestant Old Testament? Anybody know? Yell it out loud. Nope. What? Nope, not Old Testament, just Old Testament. 39 books. Someone said 29, close. 39 books in the Old Testament, okay? Now, non-pastors, how many of you know how many books are in the New Testament? 27, all right, I heard that. 27 books. 27 books in the New Testament, 39 in the Old Testament. Okay, again, this is the Protestant Bible, the one that we use here at this church, so, all right. So let's, let's look at that. Now, also, here's what's really important to understand. The story of the Old Testament and the New Testament. They're a little bit different. The story that the Old Testament covers is about this covenant with a guy named Abraham and his descendants that we call the people of Israel. Okay, so the story of the Old Testament follows a covenant with Abraham, Father Abraham, another song, not gonna sing it, and his children, the Israelites, okay? In the New Testament, Maybe you can already know where I'm going. What does the New Testament cover the story? It covers the story of Jesus and the church. Jesus and the church. That's the story. Old Testament, New Testament. Now, uh, just real quick, let me just give you, not that you'll probably care about this. The Old Testament, mostly written in Hebrew and Aramaic. Okay. New Testament, anybody know what it's written in? Greek. Okay. Okay, so this is what we have for the Old Testament and the New Testament. And when you put all of this together, here's what we have, right? We put all this together. We have the Bible, right? In the Bible, there's a total of 66 books, right? That's, if you go look in yours, you have 66 books in there. Now, these 66 books were written by 40 different writers, right? Over a span of 1,600 years, give or take. Some say 1,500, but we'll, we'll give benefit of the doubt. 1,600 years. So this is the Bible. Now, here's what's fascinating. Here's what's fascinating. If you ever do kind of say, I'm going to read the whole thing, and you understand kind of how it all fits together, what's, what's almost miraculous is that you have different writers who lived in kind of some very different cultures spanning 1,600 years, and when you put it all together, somehow it manages to tell a single narrative and story between God and mankind. It's pretty fascinating, right? And, and I don't believe that's a coincidence. I actually believe that's because the Spirit of God was involved in preserving for us this story. Now, the question that maybe you're wondering is that's great. It's great, I could read the table of contents, I could get this information. What I really wanna know is how did we get the Bible that we have? That's a great question. How do we get the Bible, the specific Bible that we do have? Now, there's a term that I wanna give you that you will not care about in any arena other than this one moment, okay? And you're gonna write this down. But the term that we use for describing the specific Bible that we do have, I'm going to write on here, okay, is called a canon or the canon of Scripture, okay? The canon of Scripture. Now, some of you are you're going, all right, I know what this is because I've been to the Blue Jackets game, and they wheel out this thing, and when they score a goal, someone goes, boom, and it goes off, right? 
Okay, but a different canon, all right? It's not the filmmaker, camera maker. This word canon comes from the Greek word kanon, which literally means a rule or a measure or a standard. So if you were going to um, go into track and field and you're going to measure how far someone can jump in the long jump, you would use a canon, a rule of measure or a standard, a boundary. Now, why is this important in understanding what we have for the Bible, this canon of Scripture? Here's why it matters. Because there is some type of standard for how we got what we have in the Bible. Okay? What is that standard? That's the real question. How are the 66 books chosen? I want to talk about that for a moment. Now, we're not going to address the Old Testament today. All right? The Old Testament, by the time Jesus showed up and walked on this earth, it was not even a question, okay, as to what books were considered part of the Old Testament scriptures. That wasn't even a question. Even today, Jewish people, that's still not a question. The Jewish people had 24 books Okay, that they have. And the Protestant Bible has 39. Now, what's the difference? It's the same content. It's just the Jewish people had it written down differently. You know how we've got, we've kind of divided it more to think about, hey, we've got 1 Kings and 2 Kings and 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles. Well, they'd have a story on one, one book, okay? And so it's actually the same content. Now, there's some other traditions, uh, Catholicism, other ones that have used some different sources that they've added, the apocryphal books, okay, to it. But the Jewish people, which this is the story of the Jewish people, what they hold to matches what we have in the Protestant Bible. So I'm not going to address that today. What I really want to talk about is the New Testament. I want to facilitate this conversation about the New Testament scriptures. How did we get them? Now, let me see if I can paint a picture for you of what it was like right after Jesus and when the church took off. Now, if you were here last week, you kind of maybe heard a little bit of what the environment was like for the early church, okay? It was dangerous, that people were persecuted. If you were a Christian, the Roman Empire, they would come and they could arrest you, they could kill you, flog you, okay? Now, in this kind of environment, when you read through the book of Acts, what you find out is that the church actually just kind of grew organically. In other words, there was no top-down approach. There was no hierarchical, like, um, you know, governing body. There wasn't like this formal, you know, denomination that surrounded the church. That did not exist in that day, okay? It was, it was you're going to find out about this in the next series, but it kind of was a little bit more like a grassroots movement. It's very fluid and organic, and the Apostle Paul would go around and started planting all these churches, and, and so these churches started to just kind of grow up all over the whole entire area. Now, at the same time, the same thing was happening with the writing of these New Testament writers, the people who are with Jesus, his disciples. And so it was kind of organic how we got the New Testament. It actually really started by churches and what they embraced and accepted. Now, by the time we get into the second century, there's a guy named Irenaeus, okay? Um, I know you just love the history of these really, really old people, and I have no idea if he looked like that. I'm not even sure how they come up with pictures of people this far back. But Irenaeus, okay, was a bishop of Lyons. He, um, one of the early church leaders, again, mid-second century. We're talking about decades into the church. Um, he was one of the first that would actually, we'd have his writings that described that it was commonly accepted who the four gospel writers were. Matthew was a tax collector that Jesus had invited to follow him. 
that Mark was a guy named John Mark that traveled around with uh, Paul. And most scholars by the end of the first century believe that Peter, his account is what you read in Mark. Luke, he was the only Greek-born writer of the entire New Testament. But what you see is Luke traveled around with Paul. So Luke lived during the time of Jesus and the early church. And then you get John. John was one of Jesus' closest friends and followers. And so it wasn't even questioned. We find out from Irenaeus, these are the only four Gospels. And in fact, we get a version of a list of the books that the church, the writings that the church had basically come to accept as being authoritative in their lives. And it was nearly matching the 27 we have now. (laughs) It was real close, not exactly. There were some small books, but you got to understand this. I want you to think about the environment, Okay. At the time, there's no easy way to communicate. The church is being, the church is growing, but it's underground, kind of like what's happened in China. It's an underground church, and it's all over the place. And so, for even small letters that they would trust to get from one place to the next was incredibly dangerous, and it took a really long time. Okay? So, Irenaeus gives us a list. It's nearly 27 of the books that we have. You go into the next century, we get into the mid third century, and we have a guy named Origen. All right, Origen, he was a brilliant writer, theologian. This is where we find one of the earliest versions we know for sure of the 27 books that were accepted as, the, as part of the New Testament. And this is what the church was using and lists the writers of the New Testament. Okay, so this is Origen. And he would uh, really give us that full list. Now, as you move into the fourth century, okay, Something interesting changes the history. The Roman emperor at the time was a guy named Constantine. And maybe if you know this story, Constantine ends up becoming a Jesus follower. And it changed everything. And in 313 AD, Constantine, as the emperor, he issues an edict called the Edict of Milan that basically allows Christianity to go without persecution. In fact, he embraces it so much that it actually became the official religion of the Roman Empire. If you're wondering where the Roman Catholic Church came from, it came from this kind of moment in the fourth century. What else happened when the persecution of the early church stopped, all of a sudden, these early leaders from all over, guess what they did? They all came together and they started comparing notes And they started going, oh, yeah, we've got all these letters and copies of these, and that's what we use. And they were, oh, we do too. We've got these. And so they came together, and all of a sudden, councils started to come of all these bishops who were coming together. And and guess what happened? In the fourth century, all they did was stamp their affirmation of the 27 books we have. The reason why I say this is because it wasn't these councils that decided it. It was the church did organically. And they stamped it, and there were two kind of significant councils. There's one called the Synod of Hippo. Okay, that's, I know, funny, Synod of Hippo. uh, That was in um, 393 A.D. And then another one, the Council of Carthage in 397 A.D. These were ones where you can go back through there where you can see all of them just affirmed the 27 books that we have in the New Testament. Now, I know some of you are thinking, yeah, but why did they choose the Gospel of Mark? over the Gospel of Thomas? That's a great question. So what you really need to know, if you want to know, okay, where did we get these from, is the criteria for canonization. 
And, and I want to give you, and so I would encourage you to write these down because, listen, you, you may go, ah, it's just the Bible, I read it. No, I would want to know that if I'm going to trust this, that it's trustworthy, okay? That's just me. So there are four things that I want to give you, and some say three, some say four. These are criteria for the canon. How did they decide what was in and what was out? Now, um, they come in different packages. I, uh, of course, in what I do, um, created four words with the same letter to alliterate because that's what pastors do and hope that you'll remember it, but I know you won't anyway. So let's, let's go ahead and look at these, okay, four words. The first one, if you were taking notes, write this down, authorship. Okay. It really mattered to the early church who the author was of the letter they were reading. Like they cared where it came from. We should too, right? They, they wanted to know that it came from the people who were with Jesus. Oh, that's from Matthew? Okay, yeah, he was the guy that walked, I'll, I'll hear what he has to say. It really mattered to them who the author was, and here's why. Because if you're gonna accept what they're telling you of what it means to follow Jesus and it becomes an authority in your life, I wanna know that it came from the right person who was with Jesus and not somebody else far removed. Does that make sense? So they really cared about who the author was of these letters. That's the first one. The second one um, I call acceptance. Okay, acceptance. Here's another thing they looked for when they all came together. Which of these books, these letters, were universally accepted amongst all the churches? Remember it was organic, it was grassroots, it was that. One of the things they looked at and they said, oh, you guys are using those? We are too. Oh, you guys are using those? We are too. Hey, listen, we are all from maybe hundreds of miles away and never met each other, but we're all using the same source and we all agree upon it. And so this was really important because of the authenticity of the letters that they had. They wanted to know that they, were, that they were all universally accepted. So again, this is how we got the 27 books, all right? The, the third thing that you could write down is this, and that is the activity. Okay. Basically, one of the questions that, that these early leaders wanted to ask when they kind of put their stamp on it was, are these letters being actively used in the church? And here's what this word, um, liturgical worship. I don't know if you ever heard that word. In other words, it was used in their services. So this wasn't like, oh, we read this letter from Peter and it was really good and you ought to read it and that was it. No, what they would do is when they would gather in their worship services, kind of like we do, guess what they would do? They would say, hey, we're gonna hear what Peter has to say about following Jesus today because he was with Jesus. And so they were looking for, were these letters actively being used in that church? And then the last A word that I wrote on here uh, is agreement. Okay. In other words, they, they cared that the message of these letters were consistent with each other, that the message and the theme of who Jesus is matched. And why this was important is because they did not want to just allow false doctrines in. Oh, this person said Jesus was like this. This person said Jesus is like that. You'll notice something if you read through, if you ever get a chance to read through all four gospels, you will get the same sense and feeling of who Jesus is regardless of which one you read. There's an agreement that happens, okay? So these are some of the criteria that was used by the early church. And so and within a couple hundred years, they all kind of agreed that we're good. 
We don't need any more. We're not taking any more submissions. We don't have any more auditions. We are good. And so what, there's a term that is used when it talks about the canon of Scripture, okay, that it is a closed canon, right? A closed canon. What does that mean? It means it's done. No more. No more books. Well, wait a minute. Um, what, what about some other books? And we found some other ones from other people, and they kind of tell us a different story. Shouldn't we allow them to be in, in there? And here's what the early church all agreed on. They said, nope, we're done. Now, why does this matter? Why does it matter that the canon was closed? Um, it really does matter a lot. Here's why. Because if we are going to learn what it means to follow Jesus, that's, that's what Jesus follower. If I want to know what it's like to follow Jesus, I want to make sure that I'm getting only the truth from the people who were with Jesus, who knew him, who heard him directly. I don't want to hear a second, third, fourth generation person guessing what they think. I just want Jesus. It's really important. Here's why. Because this is the danger of religion. We've seen this in every religion, including what's happened at times in Christianity, which is, that as soon as man gets involved and has his own ideas, he likes to dump them and layer them on top of it. So we start with Jesus, but now there's rules on rules and there's legalism and there's all these things and layers that you have to do. And before long, you can't even see Jesus in the middle of it. Why is it? It's really important because I just want Jesus. I don't want, it, I don't want more than that. And so at the end of the day, this, this is how the, the Bible kind of came to life that we have today. Now, there's a resource that I want to strongly encourage every follower of Jesus to get. I, I've been given a resource of, of books, but I, I want to I point this one out today. It's called Can We Trust the Gospels? And I want to take a moment just to zoom in on the gospel accounts for a second, okay? This book by Peter Williams is what I think every person who's a follower of Jesus, you need to get this and read it, Okay? If you're someone who goes, well, I follow Jesus. Okay, great. You have a Bible. I want to ask you to get this and read it. Because if you ever wonder, and you might have people you're going to run into, go, man, I, just, I don't think the Bible is trustworthy. I don't think it's credible. I think it was written decades after. I just, I don't think there's any way they'd know. I think it's a myth. They're making up. You ought to get this book. I'm not going to go into all of these things, but I do want to just point out a few things that, that he talks about in there. Now, Peter Williams is a guy who's part of a, a Bible printing and translating group, and so he has a lot to understand about the history of the Bible that we have today. One of the things that um, is really important, and I believe, is the four gospel accounts. I would tell you, if you go, I've never read through the whole Bible. Here's what I want to I I challenge you. How about just start with the four gospels? And though you, we might sit here and maybe we could agree and say, oh, I think all of it's inspired. That's fine. Not all of it is equally as important, if you ask me. And if you want to say, I'm going to tell you, zoom in on the gospel writers. And he makes an incredible argument for the accuracy that these people, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, had of the area. He talks about the accuracy of their geography, the accuracy of their, of their botany, the accuracy of the culture, the accuracy of the first century names. So much so that you have to believe that these people were Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that we really believe were the people with Jesus. Okay, this is, this is important. Because what we've had is we've had a lot of people kind of say, wait a minute. What about these other gospel accounts? And you have famous, you know, uh, if you think about it, not that long ago, there was a famous fiction um, writer, Dan Brown, 
You guys remember Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code? And I remember when the movie Da Vinci Code came out and everybody's losing their marbles and they're like, oh my gosh, we didn't know the church had been lying to us all this time. And there were these other gospel accounts and there's the gospel of Judas and the gospel of Thomas. There's all these gospel accounts that aren't, what are they hiding? Oh, I remember that. It's like they're hiding. They're not giving us the whole truth about Jesus. But what you'll discover if you actually look with a magnifying glass, you'll discover there is no comparison between these other accounts that truthfully were written 100 to 150 or 200 years later from people who had no idea what they were talking about and were not in first century Palestine. No idea. I'll give you quick, quick examples, okay? Just quick examples. If you read through the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what you'll find is that they knew the area very well. Why? Well, first of all, Peter, he was a fisherman in the Sea of Galilee. Matthew was a tax collector who lived there. John was somebody. They knew the area so well that they described all the towns they went to. Oh, we went to to Tyre. Oh, we went to Sidon. Oh, we went to Bethany. Oh, we went to Bethpage. Oh, we went up to Mount Carmel. Oh, we went to here. You know what's interesting? When you get into these other so-called gospel writers that people tried to attribute to Thomas, why? Because then maybe he'd be accepted. You know, the guy that everybody's called Doubting Thomas. What you find out is that they, they only match, in fact, the gospel of Thomas, I believe, only mentions Judea once in no other geographical locations at all. See, that's exactly what you'd expect from somebody who tries to write about a place you've never been. It goes on and on. Gospel of Philip, zero. No geography, none. Okay, this is somebody who's supposed to be from the area and you don't mention any of the places? This happens in in all of these gospel accounts, these so-called gospel, that have been left out by the church. No, it's because no one looks at those and go, they they do not compare to the four gospel accounts that we have. Not even remotely close. And then you look at the gospel account writers, and you know what you discover? That the, the way they understood names. You say, what's so big about names? Well, here's what's so big about names. You know how we always like to name our little babies and our kids and what's kind of culturally relevant. It would be like you naming your kid something that nobody used 150 years ago. See, the names mattered. In first century Palestine, there were certain names. And what you find that the gospel writers did, that none of the other so-called, these other gospel writers that were left out unfairly, that none of them did, was they would disambiguate these names. Here's what I mean. Simon. Simon was one of the most popular names in first century Palestine. When you read the gospel accounts, guess what they do? Is it Simon the leper? Is it Simon of Cyrene? Is it Simon Peter? Is it Simon son of Jonah? They always, here's what they did. They always use what's called a disambiguator. In other words, they said, here's Simon, but it's this Simon. Oh, and and so they would do this, and you can go through the gospel, and they do this all the time. Guess what? The gospel of Mary. Oh, people use the gospel of Mary. There's a whole different perspective, and maybe she and Jesus had a thing, and all this kind of stuff. What's interesting is the Gospel of Mary only includes like four names, okay? And one of them was Jesus, and she doesn't even use Jesus. The name she calls him Savior. 
which is exactly what you would think somebody would do 150 years later when the church believed Jesus was the savior of the world, but it's not what you would expect from the people who lived and walked with him, which is why you don't see any of the gospel accounts them referring to Jesus as savior. They refer to him as Jesus of Nazareth. They refer to him as Jesus or the Messiah, but not the savior. It's because it's not even close. What I'm trying to say is there's not the evidence that there is like there is with the four accounts. You understand what I'm saying? So I, I just, that was just a little, little taste of it. You might be going, okay, I didn't want all that. That's fine. It's free. Just like your admission, free. So I would encourage you to, to read through this. It's a little quick read, but it's helpful. You, you know what I, I hear sometimes people say when it comes to the Bible, um, especially people that want to knock it down and say that it's not true, we can't trust it, is they'll, they'll say this, um, well, how come there's all these contradictions? I don't know if you've ever wrestled with that. How come there's all these contradictions in the Bible? Well, there's actually not a ton of contradictions in the Bible. There really isn't. Uniquely enough, when you think about over 40 writers, 1,600 years, there's really not. But, but it's a great question. He deals with it in here. I'm not going to go way into it, but what's interesting is you actually find some contradictions by the same writer. Okay? There are some contradictions... And what some people that don't understand the context of what's being said is that some of the writers actually use contradiction like a paradox on purpose to actually communicate something. For example, if you were here last week when I talked about Jesus, one of the things in one chapter of John that Jesus said to his followers, he said this. He said, I'm leaving you, John 14, but you know where I'm going. And you remember what the disciples said? We don't know where you're going. Like, no, you know where I'm going, right? A couple chapters later, Jesus says to him, hey, where I'm going? He says, you have no idea where I'm going. And so you look at that and go, wait a minute. This is the same writer. He's contradicting himself. Or what you don't understand, the deeper context, which is when Jesus says, hey, you know where I'm going. He's actually talking about back to his heavenly father in heaven. Whereas later when he says, you don't have no idea where I'm going, he's actually talking about going to the cross. You see, they actually don't contradict. But if you don't understand and you just have someone goes, see, he said that. And then he says this, you're going to be like, oh, no. There, there, there's, there's, there's depth to it. There's depth to it. Now, what about the variations? You can read some of the events, the resurrection. There's two angels. That were, were there two angels inside and one on the rock? Is one on the rock? It could be both, okay? You ever consider that? But there's some variations, the very small details when it comes to the gospel accounts and the scripture. So what do, you, what do you make of that? All right, let me give you an example. I thought of this. this I don't know if this will work. How many of you have um, a brother or sister? Raise your hand if you have a brother or sister. You got siblings. Okay, a lot of you do. Um, some people were really shocked to find out in, on my staff that I have an older brother. Um, that was weird. I don't know why. I've talked about him before. But if you didn't know that, I have an older brother and I have a younger sister. Okay? So just so you know, I'm setting the record straight. I'm not an only child. I don't know how many times I've talked about being the second born, but okay. I have a middle child, which we know is God's anointed of all the children because the parents screw up the first one and then they let the third or the later ones get away with murder and it's the one in the middle that walk with Jesus. So anyways, uh, a middle child. Here, here's what I wanna say. You got brothers and sisters. Here's a little experiment that I would encourage you to do with your family you meet them Thanksgiving, right? If I were to ask you and your siblings, I want you each, you can take a week, whatever. I want you to go and I want you to write a detailed account of your childhood. 
Okay? You, your brother, your sister, whatever. Go write a detailed account of your memoirs of your childhood, what family life was like growing up together. Okay, I want you to write that and I want you to bring it back to me. Right? Okay. How many of you think that you, your brother, your sister would get every single part exactly the same? Raise your hand if you think you'd get the same. Exactly. Oh, not one of you. Did you all experience the same thing? Did you really grow up in the same family? But you wouldn't, you would see it a little bit differently. Remember it a little bit differently. Yeah, but you all experienced it together, didn't you? Right? Let me ask you what would happen if I said, here's your experiment. Go write your memoirs to you, your brother and sisters. And then a week later, you all came back and go, here's mine. Here's mine. Here's mine. And I read it and I lined them up. And they were the exact, like word for word, every story and every Christmas and Thanksgiving and vacation. And they were exactly the same. What would I think? I would think that you all got together and worked on it together. So we have four unique writers that all wrote their account with Jesus. Actually, what you find is there are zero contradictions of the message, the theme, the, who Jesus is. What you find are a few variations because of how they each experienced those things. And so if anything, here's what I would say, it lends to the credibility of what we have of these gospel accounts. If they were all identical, you, you wouldn't believe that it, you would think that they're all creating this myth of what it means to follow Jesus. Okay. Now, how do I know that I can trust what I have today? I want to make this real quick so we can move on. Um, but what's interesting is there was a guy named Erasmus. Okay. Erasmus lived in the 14 and 1500s. And Erasmus at one point was known as the um, probably kind of world renowned for the most learned man there was. Smartest, brilliant scholar, okay? So Erasmus, and this is right after the Gutenberg Press, and we're getting all this press. He was kind of recognized as the first person to publish and print the New Testament in Greek. It's not the first copy we have, but the first person to publish and print it in paper, okay? And so here's what Erasmus did as a scholar. He took the only two manuscripts that we had of the New Testament that were dated from the 1200s, or 12th century, sorry, 1100s. He took, okay, the two manuscripts that we had, full manuscripts, and he lined them up side by side. And with his knowledge of Greek, here's what he did. He went through and compared those two, and he presented a Greek copy of the New Testament in the 1500s, right? Now, since Erasmus, over 500 years have gone by, guess what we've discovered? We've discovered and found a couple thousand copies of the New Testament in Greek. He had two. We have found, this is what archaeology, this is what stuff has given us. We have found a couple thousand copies, full copies, partial copies. In fact, they found fragments of Matthew and John that are dated all the way back. They found from the second century. Okay, here's what they've done. In fact, there's two really important translations or or modern, or not translations, two important codex that we found from um, 350 AD. It was really important. They took what Erasmus used, these two manuscripts, from copies, manuscripts that we had that were almost a 1,000 years earlier. And we put them together. And guess what we discovered? That there were only eight 
verses in the entire New Testament that were even in question from the copy, the, the, the copies he used to the ones that were almost a thousand years before. Only eight verses. There's a couple sections that Erasmus already knew about that were already questioned because there was an old copy here that had this portion in John and this one did not. And they're marked in your Bible. They put an asterisk and they'll let you know. This is how accurate the copying has been of the Bible all the way to us today. But can I just say this? It's not learning about the Bible that really changes your faith. It's learning what's in the Bible that changes things. And I remember when I was um, about to turn 14 years old, and um, my, my parents, they gave us kids. Remember, I have a brother and a sister. No shock. They gave all of us a Christmas present as I was about to turn 14 years old, and it was this Bible. It's kind of falling apart a little bit, but it was this Bible. I have it inscribed in the date. and um, This was my first grown-up Bible. You know, when you're a kid, and I had little kids' Bibles, but my parents were like, we're giving you, it's, you're old enough. It's time to have a real grown-up Bible, you know, with all the little references in it. And, and um, it was special. You wouldn't think that. 14-year-old who I wanted this video game and this whatever, but it was special. And I can, I, I don't know why, but I still have this memory locked in. But I remember getting this Bible, you know, New King James Version of the Lord, our God, that's what we were given. And uh, I remember opening it up, and for the first time ever, with just an, just an honesty, I got in and I read the entire book of Mark. Just the book of Mark. I didn't start in Genesis. I just started in the book of Mark. And I don't even know to this day why I picked Mark. Probably because it's the shortest of all the gospels. But I, I read through, I, that's what I would have done, okay? But I did it on my own. And I don't know why, but even today, we're talking about decades removed. I, I can still picture myself and I remember what it was like reading through the book of Mark. It's because something happened in me when I read it. I don't, I don't know how to describe this other than to say, I think I met the author. I think I met the author. You see, some of you maybe don't know how to approach the Bible. Maybe you're intimidated by the Bible. I understand that. I understand that it's like, well, this is your job and this is what you went to school for. I understand, I understand that. But if, if I could give you just a practical piece of advice, because I want to encourage you and inspire you to try the Bible, to read the Bible with an open mind and open heart. So I, just, I want to discover something. But here's the thing. If you've been afraid and don't know where to start, here's what I'm going to tell you. Start with the four Gospels. Shouldn't I start at the beginning? Nope. Start with the four Gospels. Why? Well, let, let me give you, here's the best analogy that I came up with for helping you understand how to approach your Bible. Just think Star Wars. Okay? All right? Amen. Somebody's like, a big Star Wars fan, think Star Wars. Okay? I want you to consider, I think that there is a parallel to Star Wars that will help you understand the Bible, right? When George Lucas decided to give us Star Wars and take it from the books and give us to the movie, he didn't start with the first book, did he? Start with episode what? Four. Start with episode four. Now, I ask you this, and I don't know unless we ask him specifically, but I think I know why. Why do you think he started with episode four? Because I believe he was introducing us to the most important and the central character of the entire Star Wars story, and that was Luke Skywalker. 
It's the story of Luke Skywalker. Why don't you start with his fathers? Go back, dad, and older than that. Why? Because they're not the main characters of the story. Why, why, do you, why do I say start with the New Testament? Because there is one character who is central to the entire story and it makes all the difference in the world and his name is Jesus. And so if you're gonna start somewhere in the Bible, start with the one that it's about and that's Jesus. And if you start there, then you read all the rest through the lens of Jesus and it'll change things in you. Because what I found out is it's not just a book or a collection of books. It's not about that. It's about what happened to me when I met God through it. So my question to you is this, my question for all of us, how do you view the Bible? How do you view the Bible? Because some of you, it's just an old text and it's you know got a bunch of religious rhetoric in it and you read in the Old Testament and God seems really angry and, and, and uh, I, you know, I just, I don't, why, how can you trust something like that? And then there's others of you that are right here in this room that you would say, I believe that it is the inspired word of God. You ever heard that phrase, the inspired word of God? What do you mean it's the inspired word of God? It's just a book. It's the inspired word of God. Let, let me give you a, a way of maybe thinking about the Bible. You've never thought about it, Right? I want you to think about, um, I want you to think about Genesis chapter two. In Genesis' account of describing mankind and God creating the first man, the one we call Adam, God creating mankind. Here's what Genesis two tells us, that God formed the man out of the dust of the earth. Then it says that he was laying there lifeless. And it wasn't until God did something. He he breathed into the nostrils of the man that the man became a living being. Before God breathed his spirit into him, it was just matter. Not even living matter, just matter. What's interesting is what Paul says about scripture in 2 Timothy 3.16, he says this. He says that all scripture is what? Say this out loud, is God. And it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. In other words, that God somehow, and this is hard to understand, but God somehow supernaturally, he breathes. And all of a sudden, it's like the Bible becomes alive. It's living. It's, it's, it's a living. That's interesting. Some people tell you that the word of God is alive. Let's watch it. Nope. I don't see it moving. I don't see it breathing. I don't see anything happening. What do you mean it's alive? What do you mean it's alive? It's alive. What I think this means is that, and I'm going to say this, and please don't jump to any conclusions and think I'm a heretic. I don't personally think that the ink on the pages and the words written down by these men thousands of years ago, okay, are the living, breathing, alive words of God. I don't believe that. 
What I do believe is that whenever you and I that are a living being because the spirit of God is in us, when we read the words, that's when it becomes alive and the word of God inside of us. Do you understand what I'm saying? This this in and of itself is not alive, but when you encounter a living God through it, that's when it becomes alive. And it is the living word of God. I love how the writer of Hebrews 4 verse 12 says this, for the word of God is what? Say it's a... It's alive. The word of God is alive and it is active and it's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Have you ever felt like you've been sitting in a sermon or you're reading the Bible and all of a sudden you feel really convicted? Why do I feel like this? What's wrong with me? I'm just reading an old book that someone wrote thousands of years ago for a different culture and a different language that has nothing to do with me. It's because the Word of God is alive and it's not alive right here until you pick it up and read it. And the moment you begin to read it, you encounter the living God that inspired the word of God. And all of a sudden it comes to life inside of you. And and now you see it changing you and it'll judge you and it'll divide and it'll say, no, that's wrong. It's right. Why? Because it leads us to the author. It leads us to the author. I I love the way Jesus's closest friend, John, I love what he had to say about Jesus. You say, why do we call it the word of God? What have we learned in this series that really believe there's power in the, the breath and the word of God? There, there's creative power, dynamic power. That In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and everything was formless and void. And then what did God do? God spoke, let there be light. And there was light and God created. There's creative power in the word of God. The Bible says that the word of God does not return void, but it accomplishes God's purpose. There's something powerful and active about the word of God. And then when we meet Jesus, the central figure of the story, and John would tell us in John 1, 1 and 2, he would say, in the beginning, he's matching Genesis. In the beginning was the what? In the beginning was the what? Do you know what he's talking about? He's talking about Jesus here. In the beginning was Jesus and Jesus was with God and the word Jesus was God and he was with God in the beginning. And he would go on to say that Jesus is the word of God who took on flesh and he moved into our world and he came and joined us. In other words, it was God saying, I'm going to reveal myself to you. I want you to know me, so I'm going to speak to you. And he did through through Jesus. And today, listen, here's what I believe will happen if you would, if you would open yourself up to the living God and approach Jesus in the scriptures, here's what I believe is you get into the word of God and you'll meet the author. You dive into the pages of scripture, you'll meet the person of Jesus and that will change you because it changed me. It changed me. I went to Bible college and I knew God was calling me to be a pastor and I remember a particular class that we had. We were going through the book of Romans in the New Testament. We were, as a group, going through it verse by verse, learning about hermeneutics and expository, understanding of pulling out. And, and, and something happened one night. I don't know how to describe this. I just remember feeling something. Like something. 
something came alive. It was like something opened my eyes. And the only way I could describe it is if some of you, maybe you're married, you remember this moment. It's kind of like when you're dating someone and all of a sudden one day you wake up and realize you're in love. And all of a sudden one day I was driving home from school one night and I thought to myself, I think I'm in love with a book. Weird. I think I'm in love with the Bible. It would take me a long time to realize I wasn't in love with the Bible. I was in love with the author of the Bible. And he's changed my life and this continues to guide and it is an authority for my life because I trust it. And I trust, what do I trust? I don't trust these old men that lived thousands of years ago. No, I trust God. I trust the spirit of God taking the words that were written down by the people who were with Jesus the closest. And I trust him to bring it alive inside of me and to change me. And I pray that maybe by the end of the series that, that there's something, a little pulse of faith that's beginning to beat inside of you if you never have fully surrendered to him, then maybe it's, it's time. Would you all stand to your feet? I'm done. Let's, I want to pray. Would you just bow your heads and just close your eyes for a moment. And if you're not a person of faith, and whether this is just a moment of concentration for you, I just, I'd love for you to think about all the things that we've talked about. Father, I, I pray in this very real moment that God, at the end of the day, this is not about a religion. It's not about words on a page. It's about meeting the author of life, the one who breathed so I could live. Father, I pray right now for the person who has been skeptical, who's doubted, who's struggled to believe, but maybe, I, God, I just, just want to believe maybe in this moment that maybe there's a heartbeat of faith subtle heartbeat of faith that's starting to beat inside of your soul. If you're here today, you're watching this and you have never fully surrendered your life to Jesus, you've never gone all in because you've had all these questions and doubts and concerns, I just wonder if today maybe the Spirit of God is drawing you, the same Spirit of God that put breath in your lungs and a soul and spirit inside of you is, is drawing you to himself. Today, if that's you in this room or online, I just want you to know that you can begin a relationship, not with an old book, but a relationship with the God of the Bible, a relationship with the God who created life. You can do that through the person of Jesus. And if that's you today and that's your desire, I want to lead you in a prayer. It's a confession of faith. Maybe for some of you, it's going to be like that light bulb moment going off inside of you. Something is coming alive inside of you. And that is, this is your moment of faith and connecting with Jesus. If that's you, would you just pray this prayer with me? Today, you say, Jesus, I believe that you came for me. That you're the word of God, living and active in this moment. I believe that you died for me. You rose again to give me new life. Today, I, I place my faith in you. Today, I trust in you. I surrender my life to you. I want to follow you for the rest of my life. Father, I pray right now for those that prayed this prayer. Those that had a real encounter in a moment with you like I have. 
God, I pray that you give them the boldness, the courage, the strength to continue to take step after step and to follow you and see their life changed. God, I thank you for what you've taught us through this series. I pray, God, you'd seal it into our faith. And I pray our faith is stronger. And I pray, God, that we recognize the foundation for what we believe. Well, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Come on, let's thank God for his word. Thanks so much for tuning in to this message. I hope that it encouraged you and inspired your faith. If God is doing something in your life, would you take a moment and let us know? We wanna connect with you and we wanna be able to pray for you. All you have to do is shoot us an email to hello at the x.church or you can always send us a DM on one of our social media platforms. And if you know somebody that would also be encouraged by this very message, why not take a moment and just share it with them right now? And as always, I want to say thank you to every single person who so generously financially supports this ministry so we can continue to get messages like these out to people all over the world. We believe God is building something special and you're a significant part of it. Until next time, have a great day.